0: Well, good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright, and I want to add my word of welcome to what Justin Justin said at the beginning. Uh, If you're here for the first time especially, we hope that you will feel at home, and if you've just been visiting us for a while, um, it's regrettable that we still can't hang out over coffee in the community room, but uh, there's still weather that's good enough that maybe we can have a conversation in the parking lot. So today we're stepping aside from our current sermon series in the book of Daniel for a week, just today, and we're reflecting on the meaning of thanksgiving. Psalm 118 is one of the great summits of thankfulness in the whole Bible. It's like this explosion of gratitude. It's a long psalm, but we are going to read all of it, and I'm going to break it up into four readings throughout my sermon. Let's pray before we dive into the first four verses. Holy Spirit, would you come among us and bridge the distance between us, the physical distance and the online distance. You are the one who makes us one, your church. And as you do that, you speak your truth into our hearts and minds. And we pray for that, we long for that this morning, that you would encourage us by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's read the first four verses of Psalm 118. And this psalm is, it presupposes action. So I... The best we can do, I think, is I'm going to ask you, as you're able, to stand as I read this. So, I mean, I I thought about doing something more creative, but there is still the plague among us, right? So, um, please stand, and this is going to be up and down four times during the service, and there's also going to be a response throughout the sermon. Um, The first line you can see is give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. And it's meant to be antiphonal, which means a leader says something and then you respond. So your line is going to be his love endures forever. Can you say that? His love endures forever. So let's practice that. My line, and this will recur throughout the sermon, for he is good or for God is good. And you say... So for these four verses, I'm counting on you to be the His love endures forever voice, okay? Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love Let those who fear the Lord say, his love You may be seated. So it's Thanksgiving again, but if we're honest, it has been more challenging than usual recently for well over a year now to give thanks. Adam Grant is an organizational psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. On April 19th, earlier this year, he published an article in the New York Times that suggested a more accurate word for what we felt since this time last year. And it wasn't the word Thanksgiving. It was languishing. Some of you might have heard of this. Here's what he wrote. He said, "'Languishing is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as if you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield, and it might be the dominant emotion of 2021. His article gave us a word to describe what many of us have been feeling. And it went viral. You hear all kinds of references now to languishing. I've never heard so many people use this really fun verb. Okay, so even if you haven't used the word languish once in the past year, I think you know what I'm talking about. You can relate to this. Every Thanksgiving in my family... Well, Judith's side of the family, we gather for a feast. We didn't last year for the first time since I entered the picture. And at some point over that big meal of turkey, etc., Judith's older sister, Robin, asks all of us to share something that we're thankful for. And she means something meaningful. Now, the men try to duck under the table because they know Robin isn't going to let them get away with an answer like, I'm thankful for Nana's gravy, which covers a multitude of sins, (laughs) including Brussels sprouts. When we got together in the summer for the first time in over a year, we went around the table. We were eating together outdoors, and three of us broke down in tears. That doesn't usually happen. It has been that kind of a year. Languishing is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. So how are we going to be able to give thanks? Well, Psalm 118 is a summons to those who are languishing. It starts by calling us to thanksgiving and makes it clear that the vocation of the Christian is to give thanks. Secondly, it's realistic, it's honest about the battles we have in our lives, the struggles, our trouble. And third, it invites us to join with others together in a procession to the altar, to Eucharist. And I'll explain what that word means later. The first verse of Psalm 118 is a call to thankfulness, a call to redirect your thoughts away from yourself, where our thoughts usually reside, and to remember who God is. For he is good... I guess I need some kind of a cue. Is that going to do it? Can we work with that? Okay. For he is good. We got a dog just before the pandemic. She's not a pandemic puppy. We were ahead of the curve that way. Pepper loves all of us. It is astonishing to me, and I grew up with a dog, how enthusiastic she is. She jumps up and down, like literally six feet off the ground when you come home, every time. Sure, she might love you a little more if you feed her or if you take her for a walk, but actually, her love is amazingly consistent and egalitarian, even for those of us like me who never feed her. As humans, we might have bigger brains, but we are way more forgetful. We need reminders, and that is what this psalm gives us. His love endures forever is repeated four times from the outset. And there's a structure to this call and response in these first four verses. Let Israel, let the house of Aaron, let those who fear the Lord. It's working its way through different groups of people. Israel, all of God's chosen people. The house of Aaron, its leaders. And then you've got everyone who actually honors the Lord. And what is this love we're called to? Well, it's the heart of who God is. It's the Hebrew word chesed, which is often translated as loving kindness. If you were here with us a year ago, we talked a lot about this characteristic of God in our series in Ruth. I like to think of it as God's loyal love, his covenant love, the kind of love that never lets you down. Nothing can separate you from it. Not even death. It's not like any other love in the world, which is why it endures forever. The psalmist is trying to revive us here. He's whispering reminders to us about who God is. It's not about what we must do, it's about who God is. For God is good. But the psalmist is not a cheerleader, unlike me. Apparently, I'm a cheerleader this morning. He's not naive, he's not calling us to blindly say responses, to kind of muster our faith. No, he's in trouble, as we are about to find out. Let's read verses 5 to 13. Can I ask you to stand as you're able? When hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me, he's my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. You may be seated. So this is the first time we really meet the psalmist. The opening four verses were more like instructions, formal structure. Now it's going to get personal. He is in distress, great distress, and he cries out to the Lord. He's hard-pressed, which means he can't breathe. He feels so constricted. Literally, the Hebrew there means he's in an impossible situation, squeezing in on him that he sees no escape from. But he cries out. He's not crushed. He cries out, which is a form of prayer. Prayer is not going through the motions, though sometimes we all do that. Prayer is expecting an answer from God. And God answers the cry of the psalmist's heart. He brings him into a spacious freedom, a broad expanse, a horizon that gives him hope, that leads to the realization that everything is now changed, that the Lord is with me, The Lord is for me. I can't think of anything worse than to live with the idea that God is against you. I've talked to people who who think that God has cursed them somehow, that God has punished them. I don't really know how an atheist, someone who doesn't believe in God, would conceive of that, but I think I may have gotten a little glimpse into that uh, in August when I drove my dad to see uh, an ophthalmologist in Kingston. The doctor was a great guy. He was really generous with his time. He also pointed out that like father, like son, I was likely going to have to deal with the same macular degeneration that has left my father almost blind. He told me to eat a lot of kale. Yeah, I might take some home. And then he said, as if to sum up, What all of us are facing, he said, we are at the mercy of our genes and time. Now, that is a bleak view of life. It's the opposite of believing that God is for me. Once you've got God's favor, once you believe that God is for you on your side, once you have that lodged at the core of your worldview, you know that God is good and and yet you don't always know it. You waver. And so the psalmist moves on and starts to deal with the temptations that he faces to trust in other things. He says it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans or in princes. He's suggesting that When we look to our own resources, we lose sight of God's enduring love. We lose the plot. We fall out of the story. And whether those resources are the government, whether it's a belief in science, or in our wealth, or in some heroic figure in your life, or that you have pinned hope on somehow, whatever it is that you could not live without... The psalmist is inviting us to step away, to turn away from those things. But from there, it gets even worse. We get deeper into the trouble. He says, They surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. Three times he tells us surrounded, cut them down, surrounded, cut them down, swarmed around me, cut them down. I was pushed back and about to fall. It's a combination of lament and conflict. Christian thanksgiving is never less than realistic. God is with us in the adversity we face, in the dark valleys. As believers, we are not exempt from trouble. We sing songs about our joy and our hope. We believe that God's love endures forever. But Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But we also have the Lord with us through that trouble. Whatever is daunting and difficult in your life right now, you can face it in the power and strength of God. Your problems are great, but God is greater. And he will help you. That's what comes next. We're going to read verses 13 to 18 now, and I invite you to stand with me. You feeling the calisthenic joy of this exercise a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Any, any back problems? Yeah, I could relate. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Another translation of that verse is, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. Righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. You may be seated. Verse 13 is stark and arresting, for me anyway. I was pushed back and about to fall. He's at the very end of what he can put up with, what he can handle. But then immediately, the Lord helped him. We've been talking about dreams a bit lately in the book of Daniel. We'll have more of that next week and in following weeks. Why do we dream about falling? You ever have a nightmare about where you're falling? Often, that's the point where you wake up. It's one of the most common bad dreams that you can have. I think it's because we all know we are going to fall. That's how it could end for us. In the hour of our death, that terrible sensation of loss of control, of doom, of falling, It's coming, and we will not stand. We will fall. But the hope that is not at first apparent in these verses is this whole section is taken right out of Exodus 15. In verse 14, we read, The Lord is my strength and my defense, or my song. He has become my salvation. And then three references to the right hand of God. In Exodus 15, you can read the victory song of Moses and Miriam. Do you know that story? God sent Moses to the king of Egypt. Let my people go so they can worship me. That was God's message through Moses to Pharaoh. Ten plagues later, he agreed. The Israelites left Egypt, the Exodus we call it, And they were about to cross the Red Sea, and they saw the Egyptian chariots coming. Pharaoh changed his mind and sent his army to destroy them. And God used Moses to part the sea to make a way for his people. Imagine with me for a moment all those people crossing the Red Sea, walking past a wall of water on their right and on their left, walking through a tunnel of dry land with threats all around them. Maybe some of them were at peace as they did that, but I'm sure a lot of them went through repeating over and over, at least in their heads, if not out loud, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. But they were all equally saved. Those with strong faith, who maybe didn't even think about the possibility of their demise, and those with little to no faith. It wasn't the quality of their faith that saved them. It was God himself who saved them. It was the object of their faith who saved them. And so the turning point in this psalm, from fear and trouble into thanksgiving, comes as the Lord intervenes, as the Lord himself wins the victory, so that the psalmist will not die, will not fall, but will live. And so we say, for God is good, And as we repeat those words, as we remind ourselves, as we tell those stories, the stories of Exodus, the stories of Courtright Church, the stories of your faith journey, turning points in your life, testimony, we sometimes call it, a gate opens. Let's read verses 19 to 29. And would you stand with me as you're able? Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we will bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. You may be seated. So we enter through that gate as we come to see God rightly, as we find in him the source of our salvation, and it moves us to join in this festal procession that leads into his presence through those gates, those gates which were the gates of the temple in Jerusalem. The Lord has done it this very day, we read. And the response to that is not individual. We've just come through a whole section of the psalm where the psalmist is talking about his individual troubles. Now it's communal. In verse 25, when the psalmist cries out, Lord, save us, grant us success. It's not me, it's us. He comes back to the communal voice the psalm started with. This journey through enemies, through lament, through trouble into thanksgiving only happens in the company of God's people. The psalm is framed by community. This is how God nurtures thanksgiving. If you wonder why you aren't more grateful, why you may even find yourself complaining a lot, embittered perhaps, have you taken on yourself the discipline of being in the company, in the procession of God's people, because it was never meant to be easy. Through that, and most of all, through the one who is coming, we receive the gift of salvation, and we're invited to share our faith with others. And that's not a euphemism for evangelism. That is truly sharing our lives, sharing what we have with those right around us. In Colossians 3, it says that as members of one body, we're called to peace. And being thankful is central to that peace and flows out of it also. The message of Christ dwells in us richly as through our singing. Remember when we couldn't do that? I heard from so many of you about how hard that was. You ever tried to be bitter? Or complain when you're singing. You see people in cars sometime driving down the ham. and they're singing away. Then you see someone who's driving like, this. The difference is clear. If you are singing about almost anything, but especially if you are singing praises to God, you will be thankful. It will change you. And so the message of Christ dwells in us richly as through our singing, we encourage one another teaching and admonishing with gratitude in our hearts. When you join in worship on Sunday morning, whether you're here in person or whether you're online, you're leaving behind your isolation. A friend of mine describes it as borrowing hope from one another. You're here with other pilgrims on a journey that leads to God, and every Sunday morning, the Holy Spirit reminds you that through our worship, you are not alone. Even right now, you are in the process of changing, of being shaped into someone who more and more reflects God's goodness. Do you believe that? I hope you do. I hope you look around this room, and sadly, we're not able to do that as a whole congregation and haven't been for a year and a half. But we use our imagination as you perceive the local church, which for most of you is Courtright, as you come to have a vision of God's church beyond what is here and now, globally, through time. I hope you see these living stones from Ephesians 2, from the call to worship that Justin read this morning. That you see them coming together as the Holy Spirit breathes life into us as his church. That in fact, while that may seem so precarious, so fallen, so torn apart by division, there is nothing more real, nothing more true, nothing more beautiful, and God guarantees that it will not fall. For God is good. In verse 22, we hear about the stone the builders rejected, that it becomes the cornerstone. Jesus quoted that verse twice. Jesus spoke words from the Psalms more than any other scripture. For Christians, this is most of all what we call a messianic psalm. Jesus was rejected at the cross, he was the stone that was rejected. And risen from the dead, he has become a new and living way, a gate that leads into God's presence, open to us by his blood, his sacrifice at the cross. You cannot know this on your own. You cannot reason your way to this conclusion. As we heard last week when Justin preached, it is God's wisdom, it is foolishness to the world, and it is only revealed as he reveals it to us, this mystery of our faith. And so the festal procession goes through that gate up to the altar in the temple where the Jewish people made sacrifices over and over again. But Jesus laid his life down on that altar once and for all so that it was transformed from an altar, blood-soaked into a table around which we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we did last Sunday. The early Christians called this Eucharist, which is a Greek word that means thanksgiving. The Lord has done this, we could not. Christian salvation is unique. If there is no God, you have to earn it. You are left bearing that burden. It's up to you to make something of your life and good luck with that. With other religions, you have to work to keep God happy. If you live a good life, then hopefully you'll be okay. But the amazing grace of Jesus is unique. He invites you to cross over from death to eternal life, not through living a good life and trying really hard. When Paul says in Romans 8, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he's saying you can pass from death to life. You can be free from guilt and fear, anger and bitterness, self-condemnation the reality that you are not righteous, you are not okay, that you cannot pass through that gate into the presence of God, not unless Jesus covers you with his grace and goodness. And he does. And that's the foundation on which this psalm is built, on which our faith is given to us as a gift, on which the church is right now rising. For God is good, Peter quotes from this psalm and talks about Jesus being the stone the builders rejected, who has become the cornerstone. And so there are echoes of this psalm throughout the New Testament. And he goes on, you are a chosen people, he says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light, out of languishing into his wonderful light. Once you are not a people but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received it. Together, we are the people of God. We are chosen, set apart, to proclaim what the Lord has done, to point to that light, to share the gift of salvation and the everyday gifts we've been given, including our bounty, our everyday gifts like food and whatever it is that we have that we're able to share with others. What is the gate that is being opened to you today? How is God taking you deeper into a life of trusting him? In what part of your life is he asking you to give thanks? Maybe an area where bitterness is the truth of what you have felt and you haven't been willing to relinquish that to him. Maybe the past has a grip on you and it won't let you go. You can be free from all of that because you belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So surround yourself with people who remind you of that. List what you're thankful for, what God has done for you. We have a way of doing that in our family. We call it Rose Thorn bud. The rose is something you're thankful for. The thorn is something you're struggling with. And the bud is something you're looking forward to. Because of this languishing, when we've done it over the past year and a half, it's been really hard to come up with things that are buds, things you're looking forward to. But I've realized over these months that as we come to see right now, what we're thankful for. Instead of always looking ahead, instead of fleeing from our thorns and desperately pursuing our buds, as today, the psalmist says, as today you receive the gift of salvation, as you acknowledge the roses in your life, then you can live in the here and the now. And that may be the greatest lesson of the pandemic for us, the greatest occasion we have to see what the Holy Spirit is doing, challenging us. So I encourage you today, whether or not you're gathering with family or tomorrow, maybe you've already done it this weekend, and then it'll be a future occasion, to go around the table, to go around the circle. What is your rose? What are you thankful for? Then be honest, be realistic about your trouble, your thorn, and God will give you the bud that you're waiting for. I emailed our elders and our staff this week asking them how they nurture gratitude in their lives, how they practice thanksgiving. Every single person who gave me an example, the one common feature was that they articulated it. They said what they're thankful for. And then they were specific. Because we say thank you all the time, and it's meaningless. So I encourage you today to articulate what you're thankful for, maybe to write it down even, to share it around the table. We're going to give thanks for the harvest shortly. That's what Thanksgiving is originally from. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Amen.
1: Well, as Alex just said, in uh, Canada, one of the main reasons we celebrate Thanksgiving is to give thanks to God for this year's harvest. And we have so much to give thanks for in that regard. And often we can tend to see this metaphorically, but... Um, This has been a literal harvest at our church, which is very, very exciting that uh, we're going to be hearing from Brian in just a moment about uh, the details there. But for those who don't know, um, we've had uh, this wonderful Courtright Food Security Garden that was birthed at the beginning of the pandemic in in, uh, the spring of 2020. Uh, We kind of foresaw that there was going to be uh, a possible food, uh, food security sh- issue. And so we responded in advance and thought, what can we do? What can we bring to the table here? Um, a number of remarkable people have stepped up to the plate to help us in this process. And there's a huge team of folks who have faithfully served and given of their time, their resources, their energy to, uh, to get to some of the harvest that you see at this very table here. In a a moment, we're going to hear some of the specifics, but as someone who was able to sort of oversee, I'm not uh, the kind of guy, I I refer to Brian saying, I have a black thumb. Um, I'm not great in gardens, Um, but as someone who's had the privilege of overseeing this at kind of a macro level, it has been so heartening to see what God has been doing through this garden in our neighborhood, Um, just the way that our church has rallied. And so I want to give a massive thank you on Thanksgiving Sunday. First and foremost, to God for His provision, to the whole garden team, to some of the staff that we've had, uh, and particularly, uh, I want to. We could go really wrong by giving a bunch of names and excluding or excluding a few people, but I wanted to say a big thank you to Brian Watson, to Bruce and Kathy Dunk, and uh, just give me give them all a round of applause just for the hard work that they put in. There's so many names that we could say. Um, but you know who you are, and we are so grateful for your prayers and your uh, your actual physically being in the garden. Anyway, I'm going to be quiet now and pass it over to Brian.
2: All right. You didn't tell me you were going to do that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, um, how How incredible it is to... To, to ask God to wonder, to wait, and to feel His leading, and then to step back and make sure I don't get in the way of what He's doing. And that's what the garden has turned into so much more in, in so many ways. Um, I would say in, in the midst of the pandemic, I think it's given us something to rally around. Um, and this neighborhood, there are people who come and walk around that garden every day to see what's going on. Like, it's a, it's a place of life, and so that's, that's really been overwhelming. Um, anyway, I'll get to my script and the pictures. <laughs> Matthew thirteen eight. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, 160 or 30 times what was sown. We have harvested... And given away over forty five hundred pounds of produce to this neighborhood and to downtown food security. And we still have parsnips in the ground. <laughs> last year, Good slide, yeah. Last year we expanded from one bed to three beds in order to provide for COVID food security in Guelph. Last fall, with the help of the Seeding Our Food Future grant, we increased our size by at least three times. We now have a quarter-acre vegetable garden, possibly the biggest of its kind in Guelph. If you were to walk up and down every row in our garden, you would have walked about a mile. We were able to prepare and do our early planting in the beginning of May. A big change this year was the use of drip irrigation. We could easily water the entire quarter acre or selected rows as needed. Another advancement was the use of plastic mulch, so we could plant more onions within the space without worry of weeds. The team is appreciative of the help and experience of Bruce and Kathy Dunk. Without them, these advancements would not have been possible. This year was the first year that we grew our own seedlings. None of the incredible results could have happened without God's blessing, the prayers of many, and the many hours that at least 55 volunteers put into hands-on work in the garden this summer. This year, we have had approximately 30 harvests. A common scene on these days was the gathering of the many types of produce by June and Dawson and the helpers that were available. Some of those highlights are 254 zucchini, a lot of kale, I really mean a lot of kale. Not only has the produce from this garden put a dent in food security in Guelph, but I believe it has also changed its diet. (laughs) Much kale and Swiss chard have been consumed by the city of Guelph. 31 armloads of beets. If you look, you can see Dawson's face there. (laughs) Yes. 85 cabbages. (laughs) There was great fellowship as friends and members of our congregation met and worked together. The Holy Trinity appeared in our garden this summer, three in one. See? Not that complicated. We produced 1,161 pounds of carrots. Jill Burton's grade 5-6 class came over from Guelph Community Christian School to do the final harvest of the carrots. The open house was another highlight of this summer. Justin, June, Dawson, and the other students planned and executed an amazing evening that gave us another opportunity to give produce away. I'll repeat this again. We have harvested and given away 4,500 pounds of produce to this neighborhood and to Downtown Food Security. This has been an incredible year, incredible. Thank you to all of you who pray for the garden and its outreach to our neighborhood and to the city of Guelph. Thank you to the many volunteers who have given many hours, quite often in the sun and heat, to make this garden what it is. Thank you, God, for blessing our efforts. This garden is impacting our neighborhood. It is an incredible thing that God has led and blessed within our congregation. Thank you.